Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome all of you who are joining us online. Those of you who are here, we are glad that you are here. Wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, we're glad that you are here. We are continuing our series on a beautiful community, which is what we are looking at in this beautiful doctrine of the church. Today's message builds upon previous messages, particularly Brian's message from last week, where he so prophetically called us to understand that the church in our eternal eschatological future will be a beautiful community of diversity and unity. And we are today to show that diverse unity to the world as a sign of the future glory to come. This morning, we want to see that in the gospel, the church that is called to be that kind of diverse unity does something to our races, ethnicities, backgrounds, different statuses, and abilities. It both celebrates them and obliterates them at the same time. This is what gospel community does because the church that Jesus creates is not like any other human institution that has ever been made. It is, in fact, unique because it is not human at all. It is a divine creation made by Jesus Christ Himself, built by Him for Him to show His glory to this world, and it runs on His love the love that Jesus showed us that celebrates all differences in people as adding to the overall beauty of the bride but allows no partiality in its people as being a tremendous corruption of the truth of the gospel. Here in this passage, Paul is dealing with an incipient kind of racism based on religion between the Jewish and the non-Jewish world in the church at Ephesus. And Paul here gives us three inalienable truths that will help the church that is now be a sign of the diverse unity of the church 
of the future. And here are the three things that Paul tells us to do. Firstly, remember who you were. Secondly, remember who you've become. Thirdly, remember who you are becoming. Or to make it easier, remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember who you are called to become. Firstly, remember who you were. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, that was a term of derision that Jewish people used to use for those who were not Jewish, by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. This is who you were. This is who all of us were. Paul here is giving a deep-rooted theological vision for why racism and division of any kind cannot and should not exist in the church. He cuts to the chase. Knowing that they and the Jewish people are in tension and looking down upon each other, he says, remind yourselves of your common spiritual state before any of you believed in Jesus. And that's this. You were alienated from God. Your sin had leveled all of you to the same place, unfit to be into the presence of a holy God. That spiritual state was caused by sin. Racism, as vile as it is, as embedded as it is, is a symptom of a deeper, more vile sin uh, thing, and it's called sin. Sin is sometimes a hard word to summarize. I will use the words of Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor to the royal family and then became a pastor and writer. He put it this way, sin is essentially pride, self. Humans interested in themselves, setting themselves up as autonomous beings even when face to face with God. Pride. The desire to control our own lives. This is the essence of sin. And Paul says here, sin is the root issue. It is what alienates us from God. It is the foundational problem. It is the overarching problem. It separates us ethically from God. We no longer value what God values. It separates us morally from God. He is beautiful and holy and without taint, and we are the opposite. We're filled with dark thoughts and selfishness and moral pollution. It corrupts us spiritually. We have no power to overcome this nature in us to be proud. And so we have no power in ourselves to combat racism, which is what you're seeing in our culture now. We are going after racism hard, but we don't seem to be able to uproot it because the roots go too deep. The solutions we have in our culture are to name it, to shame it, to get people fired from it, to legislate against it, to raise the bar of consequences, legal, political, social, relational, to try and stamp it out because these are all outside in punishment-based, fear-based ways to motivate. But what Paul says, you need to go inside out. Because the issue of racism is rooted in the deeper issue of your sin, and it is so deeply a part of you. 
It is so deeply attached to your own identity as a human being. It's so a part of your spiritual DNA. You must have something more powerful than what you have in yourself. You must have God's help to uproot it. And so if the church wants to be a beautiful community, we must grapple with this. We cannot talk about racism without talking about sin. Because without getting to the root, we won't kill it. Don't just deal with the symptoms of cancer. Go after the cancer, is what Paul is saying. So let us now grapple this with this, this depth, this enduring grasp, and these fatal consequences of sin. Sin will kill you eternally. You will be separated from a holy God forever if you do not have it dealt with. But Paul says something even more powerful. It doesn't just separate you from God. It separates us from each other. Because the same pride that makes us want to defy God is the same pride that makes us want to compete with and demean and diminish and deride others. Sin always creates barriers. My envy always separates me from my friends. My pride always puts a distance between me and others. And so what Paul is saying, look unsparingly into the mirror of your own soul and see the depth of your own selfishness, your own pride, and then ask the question, how dare I judge anyone as being worse than myself? When I look unsparingly at myself and then see myself in the light of God's pure holiness, I am as undeserving as anyone. And that's the first inoculation. That's the first vaccination against this virus is to realize how sinful and wrong we are before God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember who we were. We were all this. Secondly, though, the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel starts there. Because the next words in verse 13 are two of the most beautiful words in the whole of the New Testament. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who have been far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Here we go. Here we have the second, as it were, vaccination shot. Remember who you are. You who were far away have been brought near. You who were sinners, guilty before God, have been completely forgiven. You who were absolutely estranged from the citizenship of heaven have been brought in as beloved daughters and sons. The foundation, Paul says, is Jesus Christ. He is our peace. He's not he doesn't bring peace like a peace accord. He doesn't teach peace. 
because he's not just a teacher. He is our peace because in his own person, he has made peace by sacrificing himself and paying the debt for our sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we who have faith in him might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, we were at enmity with God and Jesus took all the righteous anger of God against us, all of God's good, hatred of wrong. And Jesus said, I will take that hatred upon myself. I will pay the debt that others have created. John Stott in his magisterial work, The Cross of Christ, put it this way. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for us. Humans assert themselves against God and put themselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices Himself for us and puts Himself where only we deserve to be. Jesus died for us and accepted the penalty we deserve, and in so doing, every single sin of every single person who ever believed in Jesus is forgiven for all time, no matter how big, no matter how dark, no matter how shameful, no matter how evil, every single sin, every single sin for all time of every single believer. There are no words to plumb the depths of that mercy, but that's what He's done for us. But He didn't stop there. He didn't just make us right with God. It says here, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. What's this dividing wall? He says, that was found in the commandments. What commandments? What he's talking about here is that the Jewish people have been given certain commandments by God to obey, to be his people. They'd also been given certain sacrifices to make when they failed those commands. You see, the commands were a mirror for them to look at, to see the depth of their own soul, to see what they should aspire to be and what they were not, so that they could go to the sacrifices and experience God's grace. That was what it was meant to do, to be a people who realized their need for grace so they could bear witness to the world of a God of grace. But what did the Jewish people do with those commandments? They made them grounds to feel superior. God appeared to us. God gave us the commandments. We are a special people. They created a wall of derision and hostility that God had meant to be an architecture of grace so they could be a witness to the world. You see, even religious people, deeply religious people, can take what is good and in their pride can make it a point of division and derision and superiority. And it's not just religious people. Our culture, our secular culture does it all the time. All of us know this pattern, right? Because this pattern that I'm about to describe is pandemic in our society. We take things that we should be grateful for, like we inherit intelligence from our parents. We, we get good work ethics and life skills from our environment that we grew up in. We get good degrees from universities that our parents help prepare us for and often help pay for. 
And then we get good jobs arising out of those things and we start to advance in careers because of all that has come before us and we go, I'm pretty good. I'm better than those below me. I'm more accomplished than those in other jobs. Not realizing how much grace there was that got us there. You see, it's not just the religious culture. It's every culture that does this, particularly in global cities. Now, let's go deeper and darker. We start to sometimes impute these negative characteristics, not just individuals, but the ethnic groups, like the black community in Toronto, for example. When I was growing up in Montreal, it was the Haitian community that we used to look down upon. They were the newest wave of immigrants. When I first moved to Toronto to go to law school, it was the South Asian community that was immigrating and was getting that same derisive, divisive kind of imputation of negative characteristics. Our pride, men and women, wherever you are in your journey of faith, it's a natural divider of people. And we begin to deride and even despise. And the gospel says, you who deride and despise, look at the darkness And remember, Jesus came for you. And he died for that derision and that pride and that division. But when he came, he didn't break down just the wall of hostility between you and God. He meant to break down that wall of superiority and division between you and anybody else. You see, the picture here is of a renovator who comes in and you say, I need a new kitchen. He goes, okay, leave. I'm tearing the whole thing down, and then I'm building you a new one. I'm tearing down the old, rotten, corrupt wall of hostility based on human pride and division and derision. I'm getting rid of it. I'm cleaning it out. And then, in its place, I'm creating one new humanity, something that has never been seen before, a whole new species, not a new coalition, by the way, It's not the Jewish and the non-Jewish people coming together for a common purpose. This isn't the United Nations. This isn't NATO. This isn't the new submarine pact to help, you know, face China that we've been hearing about in the news. This is not a new coalition. It's a new creation. It is a wholly new place. Listen to Dr. David Martin. Look at verse 19. 19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. We're not just a new humanity, we're a new family. Dr. Lloyd-Jones again, speaking on these passages. How does God make peace between the races? Not by modifying what has been before, not even by improving what was there before. It is something entirely new. As we enter into the church as new creations individually, we enter into something that is itself entirely new. It is not to be conceived of as a coalition of a number of parties. It is the abolition of the old and the creation of something entirely new. That is how Christ makes peace. He produces a new people, a new family, a new household, a new race. Do we hear that? The church is one family, one new race. How is there room for racism when we're only one new race? Of course, we keep our ethnic and racial identities. Of course, we bring our diversity into this new family to enrich it. 
with all of the flavors and all of the differences that we have in this beautiful diversity, as Brian said last week, but it's one new race. No room for division or stratification. It's one new family. Now, I have a large family. Um, My parents originated in the Maritimes and then moved to Montreal for work. But uh, they both came from large families, and their families had large families, and I have dozens of cousins, and dozens and dozens of, I don't know, adopted second cousins or whatever you call them. And when I go to any kind of family reunion, I have a large spectrum of people. I have, I have like 85, 90-year-old women who kiss me right on the lips because somehow culturally that's how you embrace each other. You kiss each other on the lips and I go, ah. And then I have other cousins that just kind of wave at me. It's understood. Don't touch me, you know. That diversity. I have complete introverts who hardly will talk. And then I have extroverts, mostly in my immediate family, who will dominate every conversation. The diversity is massive but it's my family. I put up with it. I embrace it. No division. That's what we're called to do, even more so in the Christian church. The dividing wall of pride has been obliterated by the holiness of God, which humbles all of us. The dividing wall of deriding others or even thinking about others as other has been completely obliterated by Jesus dying for one new humanity rising for us and sending His Spirit into us. The glory of the gospel, the glory of Jesus, the wondrous work He has done. Can you not see this beautiful vision? If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, does this not attract you? And do you not say, yeah, but I don't see it? And you're right. Those of you who are skeptics, it's hard to see this in the Christian church. And we who are Christians have to admit that. So let's talk a moment, those of us who are Christians. People are still coming into this church and not feeling comfortable. They're feeling a bit like the other, feeling quietly isolated from deep community and fellowship, and not just on Sunday mornings, by the way. We've done interviews and surveys. We've been listening to our black community for over a year, and here's something that a significant segment of them say is that they feel there are glass ceilings of social barriers that stop them from being completely immersed in the community of faith. Even when they're in small groups, this can sometimes happen. They're not alone. There are a number of people from other ethnic communities that have also experienced this. And there are a number of congregants and lay leaders from our two majority cultures, the the white culture and the East Asian culture, who admit that they and others in their majority culture sometimes feel uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And so they do sort of out of insecurity, anxiety, maybe even fear, they don't open wide their arms and enfold others. We need to overcome fear with love because perfect love casts out fear. And I, as a leader, have had to learn my own hard lessons. When George Floyd was murdered, and I began to realize that though I do not feel like I'm a racist, I had been inattentive. I had some blind spots. I had not been inattentive enough as a leader to understand that my role is not just to, quote-unquote, not be racist. My role is to actively engage in breaking down divisions and hostilities and partialities within our church culture, within myself, within every part of this community we call the Church of Jesus. 
And so I knew I needed to learn to repent and change. And all of us, we all have areas where we struggle. We need to repent. We need to move towards each other in love. And to those two majority cultures, the South, I mean the Caucasian and the East Asian, I need to say to us belongs the greater weight of opening up our arms and making people feel enfolded and loved, to graciously help others to feel included. You may not feel like it merely by being Caucasian or being East Asian, but you are seen as the hosts because we're the two majority cultures. And in love, let's just adopt that. And let's welcome people in. To those who are not the majority culture, to our black and African communities, our Caribbean and Latin American families, our South Asian communities, you're called to help us learn how to be a family, how to open our arms, how to graciously wear the weight of being the hosts who include, and to forgive us when we blow it, because we will. I know I have. We are one new humanity forgiven, adopted by Jesus. We were strangers and aliens. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. And now finally, let's remember who we are becoming. In verse 19, you'll see a word there. It says, consequently. He's summarizing. As a result of these two truths of who you were and who you are, this is what he says. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. That's who you were, remember? But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, that's who you are. But now watch the metaphor change. Ready? Next word, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. The metaphor is just switched from a family, a group of people, foreigners to citizens to family, to a structure, a building with a cornerstone, Jesus And he goes on. He says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You hear that? We're a temple. We're citizens. We're a family. And we're becoming a temple. What's a temple? Now, most of these readers who are not Jewish would say it's, it's a place where you go to give sacrifices to whatever deity you center your life around or believe in and hope to get favor from it. We do that in our culture, by the way. We don't call it a deity. We usually call it work. <laughs> but we, we, we give sacrifices of our time. We, we let it grab our weekends, and we're, we're functioning on call half the time so that we can move up the chain and get what we want from it. It's the same transactional relationship that most of these people had with their deities. Now, the original writer had a very different relationship with his God because Paul understood temple in a very different way. You see, the temple for the Jewish people was meant to be a place of grace where they could come and sacrifice and be completely forgiven and restored in their love and communion with him. It was meant to be a place of worship where they could adore the God who had loved them and poured out His grace upon them. And it was meant to be a place of witness, where they could allow the outer world to come in and learn about this God. Grace, worship, witness. That was the temple motif in Paul's eyes. And this is what he brings to us. You, as the people who believe in Jesus, were meant to be a place of grace, where everyone remembers who they were, understands 
that we need God's grace, that I cannot merit God's applause without what Jesus has done for me. And we're meant to be a place of worship where we sing the praises and we give with our lives and our work and our money and our leisure worship to God who's been so great to us. And it's meant to be a place of witness where we tell the wider world of the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus because we've experienced it in our lives. And it has always been this way, folks. Jesus said before He died in John 13, verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we're this one new humanity, our sacrifices to God are beautiful to Him, delightful because of the sacrifices of love. Our worship is clean because racism and sexism and the old dividing walls of division are removed and our witness is more powerful because the world sees a unity they do not have from the inside out, out of the gladness and gratitude of our hearts, welcoming each other joyfully, obliterating distinctions, and yet celebrating diversity. From the inside out, love one another esteem one another. So here's some practical applications. We'll use the temple motif. Firstly, what's the foundation of this temple? They say it's Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. It's grace. It's remembering who you were and whom you've become and exulting with gratitude upon the fact that Jesus died for you who don't deserve it. And Jesus has allowed you to experience His grace. Understand who you were and whom you have become. If you're struggling with feeling unified with other people, let the gospel obliterate the distinctions by making you one in your guilt and one in your gratitude. Secondly, there are, there's the furniture of the temple, as it were, the things that make it so beautiful. And that's the love that we're called to pour out each other, the love that we've seen in Jesus. And so I'm going to name some things that Jesus, our cornerstone, has shown us that should help us furnish this temple. Firstly, Jesus killed the hostility between the races. He came to kill it. He came with the intentionality of killing the hostility. It says here, He came to break down the dividing wall. So come to the church with that intentionality that you've come to kill the hostility. Not just be, well, you know, I'm not, I, I treat people okay. No, 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 be stronger than that. Where you see division, help break it down. Where you see racism, call it out. I had to learn that this year. Learn to actively fight against partiality of any kind. In your small groups, work actively towards including everyone into a deepening relationship of unity. Be on the lookout for people left behind, maybe on the margins, and come draw them in. Take them out to lunch. Get to know them. He killed the hostility by intentionally coming to do so. Secondly, he killed the hostility by willingly entering our shoes. Jesus became one of us to become one with us. He became human so he could take the guilt of humans upon himself. 
He, took, he placed himself into our shoes and then he climbed onto our cross, the cross we should have been nailed onto. How about us? Can we not step into the shoes of others who are different? Ask about their lived experience. Hear from them. Get to know them. Listen to their stories. I remember uh, when I got married into my wife's family, um, she comes from a very thick, robust culture of people from southern India, and they have a, a particularly unique culture, and I had to enter into it and hear their stories. I also had to endure their sarcasm. I have a very sarcastic, cutting family, and I thought, you know, <clears throat> we're an all-star team, but I'm, we're junior varsity compared to her family. They are unbelievable at bantering and, and cutting each other up, and I just was stunned, and I just remember, you know, I'm married into this person. I'm married into this family. I need to step into these shoes, you know. I needed, I needed them to say, I think it took about two years when they, they finally said that boy looks white, but there's some brown inside of him somewhere. You know, you need to enter in to that. And that's what I did and needed to do. We need to do that. And finally, Jesus united us with himself when he went to the cross. Unite yourself with others. Invite them into your life. This is a bit of a funny story. Um, it's a simple one. But in its simplicity lies how easy it is to begin to invite people in. I was talking to a black leader in our community, and I was saying, have you experienced racism? And he said, well, there was a time when something happened that I don't know how to interpret. But there was a group of people in my small group that I was leading and they went out for bubble tea, and I wasn't invited. Now, they were all women, and he was a man, and they were Asian, and he was not. So, you know, he didn't, he didn't take it that way, but he wasn't sure. And I said, that's funny, because two days ago, four of my staff went out for bubble tea, and they didn't invite me either. I guess they thought I didn't like bubble tea. So I invited myself along. And we're walking, and one of them looked back at me and said, you like bubble tea, Nan? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never had bubble tea. His guess was probably right. I'm not sure I like bubble tea. <laughs> I like the one bubble tea I had, which was Earl Grey with almost no sugar. But I've tried regular bubble tea, and it's too sweet for me. But what I really liked was hanging out with these four beautiful people and feeling included. And I think what they liked was that I would willingly join them and we had a great time together, and we've gone out and done it again. You know, it doesn't take much to open your life and let others in. Jesus united himself to us by his death on the cross. We can invite people in and unite them to us simply by opening our lives to them. Let's be a beautiful community. Let's be a new humanity. Let's remember who we were. Let's remember who we are, and let's become who we're called to be, a new temple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I praise you. I magnify you. I thank you that you are our peace. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we have a few questions here flowing in. I'm just going to answer a couple. Uh, but have you had pearl milk tea? <laughs> 
Uh, no, it's my next step. Uh, but I refuse to have full sugar. I don't know how you, anyone can handle that level uh, of sugar. Uh, if majority cultures should host uh, and minority cultures are, should help the majority host better, aren't we inherently continuing in the same way? No. No, there there's a goal of complete obliteration, but in the midst of that obliteration, it's almost always steps. And so the first step is the majority culture opening themselves up and letting minority cultures in. That's normal. So there's this period where it sounds like you're perpetuating the same thing, but you're not really doing that. But to their point, there should be at the highest level an obliteration where you don't notice. It's just really hard in our racially super-sensitized culture not to notice these things. And so we take ourselves as we are and we move to the cross. How do we, how do we be inclusive to non-believers in the church? How do we take their opinions to heart? That's a really good question. We've tried to do that here. Uh, we invite your questions if you're a skeptic. We try and think about the critiques that you have, one of which I mentioned today and I think is very valid. And so there are, there are a number of ways that we try and include people who are not yet believers. There are people who have been at our church three, four years. They're not yet, um, uh, they haven't yet become Christians. We are absolutely ecstatic about that. We want this to be a place for you to feel comfortable with your questions, uh, Christian or not. Um, so uh, here's, the big, here's the big one that I don't have a perfect answer for, and I'll finish with this. For those of us who have experienced racism from the Christian community, how do we not let anger from these experiences detract us from the walk of faith? I don't know. because I have not experienced it exactly. May I say that this anger that you feel is partly righteous. And there, I think, is a way to redeem that anger to help us feel the pain of exclusion, those of us who uh, may be guilty of it. So I'm not saying that your anger is ungodly because if you're being unjustly treated inside the Christian community, that treatment is ungodly. And there's a godly anger against ungodly behavior. But channeling it and letting it marry into love of the church so you say to this, the church community that you're involved in, you've hurt me. But in love, I'm going to try and help you see it so you don't anymore. For the sake of you, I'm not going to enable your hurt. For the sake of Christ, I'm going to come in love and gentleness and firmness and speak to you about this so we can all grow. I don't know if that's helpful. This is a great question. Let me pray. and Let me actually bring up Tarek for our time of reflection. Thank you. I will answer the other texts, the other questions personally.